Welcome to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and today I'm going to be covering the specific topic of responding to objections or uh, criticisms of presuppositional apologetics. And so this is going to um, assume that folks have a, a somewhat familiarity with the presuppositional method of apologetics. I identify myself as a presuppositional apologist. Um, which stands in distinction to uh, what is uh, popularly known as the classical approach. People who, uh, like Dr. William Lane Craig, uh, is a famous classical apologist. Classical apologetics tends to provide an apologetic that is um, in the form of a two-step approach. Okay, uh, Step number one, they seek to demonstrate the existence of God via what are known as traditional proofs. So you'll hear arguments for God's existence, such as the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, things like that. And then the second step is to demonstrate uh, Christianity by appealing to evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, And so there are different variations uh, within that. Uh, I am a presuppositionalist, and so um, my apologetic methodology is not so much a bottom-up approach, arguing up to God, but rather... I find God, the God of Christianity, to be the necessary preconditions for intelligibility and knowledge altogether. And so I start with the God of the Bible, and I argue, I argue thusly, that if you do not start with the Christian worldview and the Christian God of Scripture, um, you cannot make sense out of anything whatsoever. And so my approach, my apologetic approach, is a top-down approach, right? I start with God and argue in terms of of him, and if you deny him, then reasoning is reduced to absurdity. That's kind of the the difference. Classical methods and evidential methods tend to be bottom up approaches, um, and the presuppositional method is a more of a top down approach. Okay, I do not believe that God is a conclusion to an argument; rather, He is the precondition for argument itself. He is the precondition for rationality. He's the precondition. For knowledge. He's the precondition for logic. Okay, so definitely a different approach. Um, and uh, a presuppositional apologist uh, very much seeks to ground his apologetic methodology in, uh, in Scripture. Okay, the reason why I am a presuppositional apologist is because I believe that this method is thoroughly biblical. Okay, Take, for example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and I apologize off the top right now. If I, if I misquote something, I'm, I'm kind of—I don't have anything in front of me right now except my microphone and my, my iPad here. Actually, if I can kind of uh, give some insider info here, I'm actually laying down in my bed right now. <laughs> I've never done a podcast from my bedroom, but here I am. I'm in my bedroom. Um, I have peace and quiet for a short while. Um, and I'm doing that, this podcast, uh, while I'm reclining in my, uh, my bed, I got my pillow, uh, nicely supporting my back and, uh, hopefully, uh, this will, uh, you know, I won't be so comfortable that I begin to fall asleep in the middle of the podcast. So, uh, all right. Well, that being said, so you can give you, give you a good mental picture of, of what things look like over here. Uh, th this is apologetics while in quarantine, right? Uh, we have to uh, stay separated from people as much as possible. And so here I am uh, doing apologetics in the privacy and security of my own my own bedroom. Uh, anyway, okay, so uh, let, let me define what, what I mean here. Okay, so a presuppositional apologist uh, believes that apologetics is something that is very much grounded in Scripture itself. And apologetics is also... Um, very much something that flows out of our theology, which is itself derived from Scripture, 
Okay, I believe that our apologetic methodology, the way we defend the faith, must be consistent with um, the content of our faith. All right, I, I like how Scott Oliphant, a uh, professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, defined apologetics, and he, he defined it uh, like this. He said, apologetics is Christian theology applied to unbelief. I, I like that. Christian theology applied to unbelief. And so our apologetic flows naturally from our theology, which flows or finds its roots or foundation within Scripture itself. So you take, for example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, um, which is kind of the charter verse for Christian apologetics, which says, to set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. Okay? Um, and uh, a lot of books on apologetics tend to focus on the always being ready, but uh, I think the prerequisite for, for engaging in the always being ready to give a reason is that we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, okay? And the heart is almost never referring to the organ in your chest, but often refers to the center of a person's being, his, his mind, right? His, deeper, his deepest and innermost affections. Uh, some people have referred to the heart as the seat of the will, that intellectual um, uh, aspect of our minds that go into decision-making. Uh, however, you, you kind of slice that up and understand that the Lord needs to be sitting on the throne of our minds, right? We need to think God's thoughts after him. We want to defend the faith in a way that um, humbly submits to the authority and wisdom of Scripture itself. And so a presuppositionalist will place great emphasis upon the idea that when doing apologetics, we are never to do so in a way that gives ground for neutrality, a sort of I don't know as yet mentality, that uh, the, the perspective that says, let me lay aside my presuppositions and you lay aside your presuppositions and let's look at the facts neutrally. Let's be rational men. Let's, let's follow the evidence where it goes, right? This is kind of this, this neutral approach. And I don't think that that is um, the proper way of doing apologetics, especially when we are saying as Christians that the Scripture and the God of Scripture is our ultimate foundation, our ultimate foundation, we accept God on His own say-so, and we do not pretend that we are able to independently verify God's Word as though we can stand, uh, stand as judges over God's Word. I think that's very, very important, right? So a presuppositionalist will presuppose the Christian God, the God who's revealed himself in Scripture, the triune God of Scripture, and will argue from him to everything else, right? That, that we start with God because God and his revelation, the Christian worldview, gives a context that can make coherent and intelligible everything else in human experience, okay? The Christian worldview is, is the context and lens through which everything else in human experience makes sense, okay? And so we argue on that basis. And this is indeed biblical, right? Um, I do not seek to demonstrate the truth of God's Word independent of, God, of God's own authority, as though I can stand uh, autonomously and reason my way to God. Um, this is the nature of um, ultimate authorities, which I'll kind of expound upon uh, in a little bit. So uh, just laying the groundwork there, there's much that can be said. I do believe that we are to uh, consider uh, important scriptural um issues like the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the Lordship of Jesus Christ over the believer has great relevance in apologetics. Um, Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and so if I argue upon a different basis other than Christ's own self-attestingly true word, 
then um, I am not availing myself of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 1, 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we start with God and we see all things in light of God's revelation. Okay, And when I say God, I'm meaning more specifically the Christian God, the triune God. Of scripture. Okay, so that's just a, a kind of a brief outline. Of course, things. If, if you haven't heard of presuppositional apologetics, I'm sure there are a thousand questions that just pop into your head. Um, hopefully, I can address them in addressing common objections. Okay, and these are common objections to the presuppositional methodology that I that I hear, and so um, I'm going to try my best to lay these things out um, with the limited resources that I have. As as I've told you before, I'm lying down uh, in my bed right now. So. Uh, so, okay, so cri criticism number one, you know, I hear people say, um, you know, uh, people ask the question, when I argue along the lines um, that the proof for the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. And basically, the essence of that argument is that the Christian worldview is the necessary precondition for knowledge. If you don't start with the Christian God, you can't have knowledge. Uh, and of course that needs to be hashed out a little more, but I'm assuming that some folks have some background as to why that's the case. Um, but keeping that in mind, some people will say, or ask rather, have you disproven every single non-Christian worldview so that you know without a doubt that the Christian one is true? Okay. Some people ask this question. So if I say the Christian worldview is the necessary precondition, and they'll say, well, how do you know that? You know, have you, have you disproven every other worldview perspective out there? Okay. Well, first, there are a couple of things that need to be kept in mind. All right. The worldview out of which this very claim itself is derived must provide the necessary preconditions for intelligibility. If the worldview itself, the worldview that, that you know, the worldview of the person that's asking this question, okay, if the worldview is not justified, then neither is the statement justified because it comes out of a worldview perspective that is itself unable to ground logic knowledge, intelligibility, and hence the very question itself. If the claim is worldview is false, then the statement is false, since no one can make a hypothetical claim independent of a worldview context, right? No one is neutral. And it is the very worldview context that provides coherency and intelligibility to the question. What does this, what does this mean? Okay. So when I am, when I'm engaging the unbeliever and the unbeliever is asking me, well, you haven't disproven every other worldview. Well, what was my claim? The claim of the presuppositionalist when we're using what we call the transcendental argument is that the truth of the Christian worldview is demonstrated to be true by the impossibility of the contrary. Deny it and you cannot ground knowledge, logic, intelligibility or anything like that or anything. OK, and again, I understand that's just a statement. I'm I am more than willing to argue that, but that's not the purpose here. OK, so if someone says this. Um, all they need to do to refute me is to give me something that they know, a knowledge claim that they know, given the truth of their own outlook, their own worldview. Okay, I believe that unbelievers know a whole bunch of things, but it's not because their worldview is coherent and provides context for knowledge, but rather they are inconsistent. They must, we would argue, borrow from the Christian worldview in order to make sense out of any claim to knowledge that they have, all the while rejecting the Christian worldview. Okay, So if the unbeliever is asking, have you disproven every single non-Christian worldview so that you could know without a doubt that the Christian worldview is true? Um, first, I, I could pull the rug right off the, the unbelievers, uh, you know, from under the unbeliever and ask, well, if you can't ground knowledge within your own worldview, then the very question you're asking is is illegitimate because you're you're asking it from a perspective from a worldview that is not itself grounded um, and does not make intelligible the very formation of the question itself. 
Okay, uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Furthermore, while it's true that there are way too many worldviews to go through one by one, like inductively, the Christian need not do this, since the broad categories and iterations of autonomous non-Christian worldviews are indeed finite, and I think quite manageable. All the presuppositionalist needs to do is go through a list of exhaustive uh, classifications of worldviews, and this list is pretty short. And even though particular worldviews, which, uh, which, in other words, I can go through the broad categories of which every single worldview must be a part of. So, for example, I don't know how many religions are out there. I don't know how many individual philosophies are out there. But all philosophies will fit under a very brief, a short list of categories. For example, uh, you have monism, the view that all is one. Okay, um, if you are a monist and you believe all is one, so all is matter or all is mind. If you're an idealist, right, you are a, a form of monist. Okay, every single worldview that is monistic, that posits a fundamental oneness to reality, whether it's a spiritual oneness like uh, pantheism or a physical oneness like um, physical monism or atomism, any form of Eastern religion or materialistic atheism would be under uh, a form of monism. Um, and there's also uh, atomism, which can be part of that category. Um, if you refute monism, then you've refuted every single worldview that is grounded on a, on a position of monism. See how that works, right? So if you have 10 religions and 10 of these religions are based on the foundation of monism, that all is one, they posit some form of ultimate oneness, whether it's a spiritual oneness or a physical oneness or whatever, if you refute monism as a category, as a broad category, then that by necessity refutes all of the specific individual religions and philosophies that are grounded upon monism, okay? Um, you have finite god groups like uh, the Norse religions and the Greek pantheon and the, the Roman pantheon and Mormonism, any view that posits um, multiple gods. So, for example, how might a presuppositionalist argue against a polytheist. Well, again, if my argument is that if the Christian worldview were not true, you couldn't know anything at all, that can be easily demonstrated against a polytheistic religion. Because what does a polytheistic religion lack, right? Polytheism, if we can go back to global history, <laughs> if you guys remember your social studies classes, uh, polytheism is the belief in many gods. And if there are just a multiplicity of gods, what you lack is an all-encompassing absolute omnipresent God. You're lacking an ultimate rational foundation because all you have at base are multiple in, uh, multiple finite deities, right? Zeus is not all-knowing. He's not everywhere present, okay? Uh, and all of the individual polytheistic finite gods are, are not absolute in any sense. And so these individual finite deities live within a broader context of impersonality, since all of reality is not grounded in rationality because you don't have an all-encompassing divine mind, rational mind that is omnipresent and grounds reality on a rational basis. On polytheism, you don't have that. You have individual deities living independently within a broader impersonal universe. And that, imper that aspect, that impersonal aspect of, of the world is mysterious. These finite gods don't know every detail about the mysterious context in which they find themselves in. And so any claim to knowledge, not much less of a human being, any claim to knowledge any of these individual deities would lay claim to. 
they couldn't know the particular instances of knowledge they think they know because because they are surrounded by an ultimate mystery, a mysterious context outside themselves. There can always be some unknown fact that can falsify what they think they know. And so these poly, this polytheistic pantheon of gods can't ground knowledge because they themselves could be wrong about what they think they know. Okay, and that would go the same for any worldview that posits, um, you know, only finite minds uh, living within the context of an impersonal um, environment. Okay, now again, you might require a little bit of philosophical background to follow where I'm going with that, but uh, that's why polytheism can't ground logic. Logic, for example, or knowledge for that matter. Logic, for example, are universal conceptual laws, right? They are universally applicable. They are true everywhere and all the time, okay? But if you have individual gods of a finite nature, what grounds these universal laws of logic? It can't be the mind of a finite god. How can you have universal laws of logic grounded in individual finite minds? That doesn't work. You see, within a worldview where there is an absolute mind, an all-encompassing mind like Christianity, you have the universal laws of logic grounded in the universal mind of God, you see. So that's not a problem for Christianity. And this does not work, by the way, for other monotheistic religions. So if you posit a worldview in which uh, there's an all-encompassing mind, I would argue that it would necessarily have to be the triune God, not just any old God will do, right? But that would have to be expanded upon. So you have the, the broad category, monism, okay? And uh, if you refute monism as a category, then every single individual um, religion that is under that umbrella is uh, stands refuted as well. Finite God groups, if you're a polytheist, you still cannot ground the universal laws of logic and intelligibility and knowledge or anything like that. And then, of course, you have the personal theistic worldviews, religions like Judaism, Islam, the various uh, cults that want to be part of the Bible, but they don't adopt the whole thing, right? They either subtract to uh, divine revelation or add to divine revelation. These religions will not do it as well. I'm not going to go through each and every one, but if you take, for example, Islam, you know, what if you say, you know, for example, well, Islam has an absolute um, all-encompassing God. Um, but let's, uh, well, let's do that. So, so let's, let's apply Proverbs 26. Okay. Proverbs 26, um, the specific verse, uh, escapes me right now. Again, I'll remind you, I'm speaking from my bedroom right now. <laughs> I don't have references in front of me, but, um, in, if you take a look at Islam, okay. And, uh, I'm sorry, if you take a look at Proverbs 26, there is a principle in which uh, the 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 author of this of the proverb says that we are to answer not the fool, lest we become foolish like like him, and then the next verse says, "Answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit." So we have this apolog this biblical apologetic application in which we are to answer the fool and not answer the fool. Okay, now this is not a contradiction in the Bible. This is a very wise principle. Okay. As Christians who are committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the thinking of the, of, of, what can I say this? We're committed to, to thinking God's thoughts after him in a way that honors him and places him in the proper role of authority. We, um, we do not want to adopt unbiblical and worldly philosophical, uh, reasonings. Okay. The elementary principles of the world, as it were, we don't want to adopt that. So I don't want to answer the fool, 
according to his folly. I don't want to answer the fool on his terms, okay? But answer the fool according to his folly. But I want to hypothetically grant the truth of the fool's position to show that it leads to foolishness. So how might we do this? So we take, for example, Islam, okay? We have his personal theistic God, uh, Allah. And so if we hypothetically grant the truth of, of um, Islam and the, uh, the God that Islam posits, then, then we can do what's called an internal critique, okay? So for example, if I'm going to back up and give the argument again, the argument here in kind of a very uh, popular form, there are different ways to form it, but this is kind of the way people who are familiar with presuppositionalist, uh, presuppositionalism are familiar with. The proof of the Christian God, the proof of the Christian worldview, is that if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. Okay, and so along comes the uh, the atheist and says, "Well, I don't believe that atheism can ground uh, logic and and knowledge and whatever." And then the Christian engages in in intellectual combat with the atheist and refutes him. And so everyone claps their hand and says, "Great, you've refuted atheism." But what about another religion, something like Islam, which has an absolute God who apparently can ground logic and knowledge because it's you know Allah reveals Himself. You know, you have the Quran, which reveals. Uh, you know, Allah's will and things like that. Now, how might we respond to that as presuppositionalists? Well, well, tell me something about Allah, right? Let's lay it out. So if you're positing the hypothesis that Islam is able to ground knowledge and is a sufficient foundation, well, a necessary foundation for, for human knowledge and, and so on, uh, what do we learn about Allah? Well, we learn about we learn many things, and there are different ways you can attack this position. But an interesting fact about Allah is that in Islam, Allah is actually allowed to deceive. Okay, He is known as the greatest deceiver. Okay, and so Allah is actually allowed to lie. He's not limited by any restrictions within His own nature in that way. Okay, and um, if your God is allowed to lie, there is a problem epistemologically speaking. Now, again, if those of you who are listening are not familiar with epistemology, epistemology is that branch of philosophy which studies uh, knowledge, theories of knowledge, how knowledge is gained. Okay, and so if you are a Muslim and you affirm that God is able to lie, then you have a problem because then we could engage in the not answering the fool and answering the fool. Let us answer the fool according to his folly. Let's, let's grant this. Let's grant that Islam is true. Well, if Allah is able to lie, how do you know that he is now, uh, that he has, that he's not lying? In the Quran, how do you know that the Quran is just one of the, uh, you know, one of the lies of Allah? Okay. Now you could say, but Allah is righteous. Allah is holy. He doesn't deceive everyone. He just deceives unbelievers or, or something like that. Um, but the fact that he can deceive, are, are you, is that, is that, is that necessarily true? Is it impossible? Is Allah limited uh, that he's that he's able to deceive uh, unbelievers, but he's not able to deceive believers? Is this a restriction on, on Allah? If he is allowed to deceive, then there is no way to get around the the skeptical ramifications of this, that there is no way, in fact, to know that Allah is not lying to us in the Quran. Okay? And so everything you think you know may be part of a deception. And so epistemologically, you run into a, a, a you know, some difficulties there. Again, that might just be in broad sketch a way you can critique a competing theistic claim to being the necessary preconditions for knowledge, uh, logic, and intelligibility. Okay? And so you have these different categories. Monism, material, uh, monism, finite gods, personal uh, theistic positions. Okay? 
And if you refute uh, those specific categories, broadly speaking, uh, you would, in essence, uh, refute the subcategories that are based upon each of those specific categories. Okay. All right. So uh, within the Christian worldview, uh, there are no other worldviews that can provide the necessary preconditions for intelligibility, logic, and knowledge. And to suggest that it is possible for there to be another worldview that meets this criteria is just to argue externally, right? If someone were to just say, well, maybe there's some other uh, worldview out there. Well, uh, I don't assume that because within the Christian worldview, there's only one. And for me to admit that there might possibly be another is for me to adopt your presupposition that the Christian worldview is not the necessary one. So I'm not going to adopt, uh, I'm not going to answer the fool according to his folly, right? I do not entertain the idea that there is another foundation um, other than the Christian God because I'm committed to the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. To suggest that there might be another is something coming externally from the unbeliever's worldview perspective because the unbeliever does not see the Christian God as the necessary precondition, okay? So, uh, again... Uh, and then I'd revert back to what I previously said to kind of walk through um, why we think that some of those other religious perspectives are not sufficient. Okay, The person making such a claim that there might be other uh, views out there is assuming the non-Christian worldview, really, and throwing out that suggestion from that non-Christian worldview foundation. This is called an external critique, and it's an illegitimate way to critique a competing worldview. And the reason being is that you cannot falsify a worldview for the mere reason that it does not agree with your presuppositional commitments. Of course, I don't agree with the, uh, with the presuppositional commitments of the unbeliever. And so I do not allow the presuppositions of the unbeliever that I disagree with to be the very standard upon which I judge the truthfulness of my own, of my own presuppositions. You see, I'm committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and I'm not committed to the unbiblical and unchristian presuppositions of the unbeliever. Okay, and so um, I would say at that point that there is no neutrality, right? As presuppositionalists, we lay it out at the beginning. I am not neutral. I'm committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And of course, the unbeliever who claims to be neutral is not neutral. <laughs> okay, no one is neutral. It's impossible. I'm not saying this so as to put forth this idea that we need to be kind of these closed-minded, narrow-minded, you know, I don't want to hear what you have to say. No, I'm willing to hear what you have to say. But let's just get this out right away. No one is neutral, right? We have our commitments. We have our, quote, Bibles, so to speak. I'm standing on a Christian foundation. The unbeliever's standing on a different foundation. And uh, the presuppositional task is to bring out those foundations, bring them to light, and then bring them to head against one another, one another to show that only upon the Christian presuppositions can um, reality make sense. <laughs> okay, that's the claim. All right. Well, if you've been listening so far, you're, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm, I'm not a complete, you know, putz. I know philosophy. I know logic. You can't just use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's, that's circular reasoning, right? And this is usually another uh, objection that's raised against the presuppositional uh, method. I guess I would just ask the person who says you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's circular. Um, I would ask, are you suggesting, Mr. Unbeliever, that it is always, you know, illegitimate to assume the very thing one is trying to prove? If not, then what's your complaint? If so, then are you able to prove the validity of your reasoning without using your reasoning? Are you able to demonstrate the reliability and validity of the laws of logic without using the laws of logic? Are you able to demonstrate independently the reliability of the senses without using your senses? Now, of course, when we're dealing with our ultimate commitments, we'll have to assume that which is ultimate to demonstrate the truth of our ultimate. 
And I think this is completely legitimate and it is stealth-stullifying to reject this. For the Christian, the Bible, because of its ultimate status as God's word, is self-attestingly true and taken on its own ultimate authority. Now, of course, this does not imply the notion that the Bible is true because the Bible is true. That's not my argument at all. Rather, what I'm saying is that the Bible is self-attestingly true, and if you reject this, then your worldview is reduced to absurdity. What I'm asserting here goes beyond merely making a claim because the proof of the claim is that in its denial, its truth is demonstrated. Okay? And I'm not really saying anything novel, right? Let's narrow down, let's narrow down the issues a little bit. When we consider, for example, uh, what's called the Munchausen trilemma, okay, when addressing whether a proposition is, is known to be true, we can offer a proof, okay? However, we can then ask the further, uh, we can ask further whether the proof is valid and true. And in this case, here are the ways in which one can answer. And here is the Munchausen trilemma. There are really three things, three ways you could answer this. Number one, uh, to demonstrate that something's true, you can offer a circular argument based on our ultimate authority in which the proof of some proposition is supported only by that proposition itself. Okay, I'll say that again. Number one, we can offer a circular argument in which the proof of some proposition is supported only by that proposition itself. Two, we can offer a regressive argument in which each proof requires further proof ad infinitum. Okay, and you're going to, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Or you could offer an axiomatic argument which rests on accepted precepts which are merely asserted rather than defended. Okay, those are three ways you can answer. If I would say demonstrate something is true, demonstrate a proposition is true, you either appeal to the circular nature of your ultimate commitments or you give an infinite regressive uh, answer. I believe this because of this and I believe this because of this and I believe this because of this and I believe this because of this, so on and so forth. If you go on to infinity, you've never justified the specific thing you were trying to prove in the first place. And so regressive arguments are undermine knowledge claims. If you're starting with an axiom, then axioms by definition are are uh, are not demonstrated. You just accept them, and then you build, uh, you know, the rest of your worldview and all your knowledge claims based on those unargued for axioms. Or you can use cir a circular argument um, in in the sense that you have presuppositions and uh, you argue from the truths of those presuppositions. Okay. Now, while this, you know, pe people might say, well, well, wait a minute. Okay. You can't demonstrate a presupposition since it's an elementary assumption. If you demonstrate it, then it's not a presupposition. Okay. And I just have a few things, a few things to say about this. Now, while this is true in a generic sense, it is most certainly false in an ultimate sense, since to reject the notion that one's presuppositions can be justified and demonstrated to be true is to reject the possibility of transcendental proofs in general. Okay. And I, I don't know if someone's willing to go that far. Transcendental proofs aren't real proofs. That's ridiculous, right? I'm not sure someone would want to go down that route. So I think it's demonstrably easy to show that something can be proven transcendentally. For example, when you prove something transcendentally, basically what you're asking, when you're talking about transcendentals, you're asking what must be the case in order for something else to be the case, okay? So for example, when we consider the laws of logic, how do we prove the laws of logic? Well, I have to assume the laws of logic to prove it, Okay. Okay, so, so, so the laws of logic, we have to assume them in order to deny them, and they are proven, really, by the impossibility of the contrary. Affirm them, and you use them. Deny them, and you use them. Okay, so you don't want to deny transcendental proofs. And what we're saying is that our ultimate presupposition 
is a presupposition, but it can be demonstrated transcendentally. It is not demonstrated by appealing to something more foundational to it, but rather we demonstrate our presupposition by appealing to its transcendental necessity that if you deny it, you must affirm it in order to deny it, which is self-refuting. Okay. All right. My next uh, thing here. Okay. This this one, this one comes up a lot, especially people who are more uh, philosophically minded. I think it's important to address this. Okay. I think presuppositionalism is often criticized for conflating ontology, right? The nature of being with epistemology. Okay. So ontology deals with issues of like metaphysics and epistemology deals with issues concerning knowledge. Okay. And so people will criticize presuppositionalism for conflating uh, the, the two, okay? I don't think this is the case at all, okay? We simply recognize the symbiotic relationship uh, between the two. One cannot speak of epistemology absent of ontological commitments, all right? If you're going to speak about epistemology, that presupposes metaphysics. There is, in a sense, an ontology of epistemology. One's theory of knowledge is what it is because reality or ontology is what it is. Every supposed instance of knowledge only has meaning and coherence as it relates to the broader worldview system. Parts only have meaning as it relates to the whole. All right. So we do not talk about epistemology independent of a broader metaphysic. All right. And there is not a sequential order to these things. We hold them as a package deal. I cannot speak about metaphysics without speaking of of ontology. And I can't do ontology without speaking of epistemology. Okay. From a biblical perspective, though, and I think this is really, really important. From a biblical perspective, every fact about anything only has meaning within the ontological context of the triune God of Scripture. Okay? This is true even if a person is unaware of the Trinity or does not possess a Bible. The triune God exists even though a person does not know the triune nature of God directly because perhaps maybe he lacks special revelation or something like that. Okay? For since all men exist within the context of revelation— Right, at least even general revelation if you don't have a Bible, consciousness of man is simultaneous with consciousness of God. Indeed, a person must function within and think conceptually and rationally within the one and the many categories. Otherwise, knowledge, logic, and predication would be impossible since both necessarily only have meaning within the ontological context of oneness and manyness. For the Christian theist, the triune God is that ontological context of oneness and manyness, which are both equally ultimate within him and make coherent any concept, even the very concept of, of knowledge, of epistemology. Okay. Now, what do I mean by this? What, what do I mean by oneness and manyness? Well, this has been an issue that has been raised even uh, throughout the ancient Greek philosophy, especially within the pre-Socratics, uh, where um, the question was asked, what is the fundamental essence of reality? Is the fundamental essence of reality a sort of oneness or a manyness. Okay, some have posited those who are monist, uh, pre-Socratic uh, Greek philosophers who held to like a monistic perspective would say that all is water or all is air or all is fire. Okay, and you have some idealists. People say all is mind. You see, so, so people are trying to answer the question when they say that reality is all fill in the blank. They're trying to account for oneness. But the problem is, in reality, we not only experience unity and oneness, we also experience manyness and particularity, okay? And so the, the pre-Socratic uh, philosophers tried to ask the question, how do we bring this together? Which, which is more ultimate? 
And of course, throughout the, uh, the course of Western philosophy, there really is no answer to this. These are philosophical um, views that spring out from the attempts to answer this question fail miserably. Okay, But the, the, Christian, the Christian philosophy that presupposes the reality of the Trinity, we don't say that there is one that grounds all things. Nor do we say that there is a many that grounds all things at that fundamental level when we're discussing issues of the ultimate essence of reality. Rather, the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, is that unity and plurality are both equally ultimate in God. Because God is one and many. He is a tri-many unity, one. And so he is also an all-encompassing absolute God. And so the all-encompassing absolute God is the rational foundation for all reality. And because he is the essence of unity and oneness, he can ground both unity and plurality that we experience in all things. Language presupposes unity and plurality. The very fact that we utter sentences, logic, unity, particular things we speak about, particulars, okay, um, you know, we can talk about ducks on a pond, ducks, particular ducks. That's many universal uniting and binding concepts, duckness, the nature of a duck, <laughs> which, which you don't see on a pond. You have oneness and manyness. What grounds that? Whatever grounds it must be able to ground oneness and manyness equally. And of course, oneness and manyness are equally ultimate within the ontological triune God. Okay. So the, the Christian philosophy of the Trinity answers these difficult philosophical questions, okay? So to illustrate the the how ontology or epistemology and ontology work together and that presuppositionalists don't kind of conflate these, let me illustrate the symbiotic relationship between epistemology and ontology. Now, Greg Bonson, who is, uh, a, well, he was a presuppositionalist, and I think he was one of the finest presuppositionalists uh, out there. Uh, he used the example of a person who wished to create an apple sorting machine, Okay. And this machine was to separate good apples from bad apples, okay? Now, in this example, the machine constitutes the method by which the apples would be differentiated and sorted, and the apples themselves constituted ontology, right? So the machine kind of uh, that determines good apple from bad apple is the epistemology, and the apples themselves are the ontology, the metaphysics, okay? So the machine was epistemology, the apples were ontology. Now, what must be known? In order to conclude that the machine was working properly and as such successfully sorted, sorting and differentiating between the good and bad apples. Well, the person must know ahead of time, so to speak, the actual difference between good apples and bad apples, right? They need to know the ontology. In essence, the person would have to know the nature of reality, ontology, metaphysics, right? In order to know how to build the machine as epistemology. And that is supposed to differentiate between good apples and bad apples. Okay. So in order to determine what's a good apple or bad apple, if you're going to construct an epistemology, how am I, how am I going to know? You're first going to have to know the ontology. How, how would I know the difference between good apples and bad apples without already first knowing what an apple is and what makes a good apple a good apple and a bad apple a bad apple? Okay. Hence, in order to know anything, epistemology, one must have an ontology working symbiotically and simultaneously with one's epistemology. All right. 
How can a person build an epistemology, an apple sorting machine, without presupposing a specific ontology that makes sense of the epistemology? How can you know the differences between good apples and bad apples, epistemology, without first knowing the actual nature of apples such that one can tell the difference between good and bad apples? Okay. All right. Uh, whew. Well, I, if your if your brain is not uh, bleeding right now, uh, if your if the clear liquid is not seeping out of your ears from all of this uh, <laughs> all of this difficult topic, I'm so sorry. Um, that's a good thing if if your if your ears aren't aren't leaking. Um, if you find this helpful, I, here's the thing. I tried to shoot uh, I, sh I tried to shoot high in terms of of the content that I'm that I'm providing, hoping that those who are may not be at that level yet can still grab something that is useful, okay? I guess the basic essence of presuppositionalism is that God and his word need to be the ultimate foundation in our reasoning, and we are not to forsake that authority when we are engaging in the defense of the faith. Remember, as Scott Oliphant has defined for us, Christian apologetics is Christian theology applied to unbelief. We want to apply solid biblical theology with regards to apologetics to the area of unbelief. And in so doing, we do not um, concede ground to the unbeliever that the Bible itself tells us that we should not. We should function under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and honor him by presupposing his ultimacy and arguing that without it, they are in the place, biblically speaking, they are in the place of the fool, right? The, the, the unbeliever's position is reduced to absurdity. Deny God and you are standing on the foundation of foolishness. Deny God. You're denying the firm foundation built upon the rock, and rather you are building your house on, as Greg Bonson used to say, the ruinous sands of human autonomy. All right. Well, um, I'm kind of working on some intro music. I have a, a, a gentleman over in Australia who has offered to help me with uh, uh, creating some intro music. Uh, I know that there have been complaints that the volume was a little off, right? Um, so for now, in this episode, I'm not going to have any uh, intro music, uh, but in the future, um, you guys will see the change eventually when, when that's sorted out. So from this point on, until I get that sorted out, there'll be no intro music to the podcast. Uh, I know some people like it, but others have complained. So I'm trying to kind of give... Uh, a fair hearing to those who have shared their uh, their concerns. At any rate, uh, this is it for this this episode. I hope this wasn't too much to, to swallow. And uh, if you have any questions, especially in light of what I've said uh, in this episode, please um, email me, revealedapologetics at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the YouTube channel as well, Revealed Apologetics um, on YouTube. And of course, this podcast can be subscribed to on iTunes and other platforms. That's all I have for today. So take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers. And if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can, by doing so, um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can um, uh, help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, paypal.me slash revealedapologetics. And that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we, we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. 
Um, and um, once again, if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless. Thank you.